Is mainstream school failing your kids? The pandemic, with all the changes to schooling and daily life, is a moment of opportunity to rethink the educational path that works best for you and for your kids. So the question is, how can we as parents find alternative solutions that aren't necessarily having to do it all ourselves or pay for programs that we can't afford? I'm Jerry Kirk. And I'm Graham Kirk. Join us as we talk with families thriving on their own path. We shared practical tips, wins, and challenges they've been through to help you on yours. We interview educational experts and parent entrepreneurs with education solutions for the modern age. So parents wanting a better alternative can make confident, informed choices. Welcome to the Modern Education Movement Podcast. You're ready for change. And so are we. What's up, everybody? Welcome back to the Modern Education Movement Podcast. I'm super excited for today's show, and I'm going to tell you why. Now, a lot of you are getting exposed or considering non-traditional forms of education. And I know many of you are really wondering, you know, what is hype and what really works, right? What's paying attention to? Well, today, we're going to pull back the curtain and we're going to take an academic research point of view at one of the lesser understood schooling options. It's called unschooling, right? It's like, it's a fundamentally opposite approach to traditional education, as the name suggests. And my guest today, Gina Riley, is known internationally for her work in the fields of homeschooling, unschooling, and self-directed learning. In addition, Dr. Riley has extensive experience in online education and distance learning at the college university level. Now, she's an educational psychologist, a clinical professor, and program leader of the Adolescent Special Education Program at CUNY Hunter College. And Dr. Riley has over 15 years experience as well, which I find really interesting, working with teens who are diagnosed with learning disabilities and emotional behavioral disorders. She's also a seasoned academic with years of teaching, research, and supervisory experience within the fields of special education, psychology, school psychology, and mental health counseling. So fasten your seatbelts, everyone. We're about to pull back the curtain and examine the world of unschooling and more through the lens of academic research. Gina, so good to have you on the show today. So happy to be here. Thanks so much for having me. Yeah, it's, 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 it's a real treat. You're the first First person I have on who, who um, really studies these different topics, and you've done a lot of extensive studies, so I'm really, really interested to see where this goes today. But first, uh, just tell me, how, how are you doing right now? We have elections going on in the U.S. right now with COVID and everything. I mean, you're in New York. Um, what's, what's life looking like for you? Yeah, so I'm ignoring the news. <laughs> Sounds like a good, healthy choice. Not easy to do, I imagine, though. <laughs> Keeps me positive and upbeat. We just got a new German shepherd puppy and I just brought him to feed some goats at our local farm and I'm ready for the day and so excited to talk with you. Right. Yeah, that's, that sounds like a great way to start. <laughs> yeah, it was a good start to the day. Yeah, awesome. Well, you know, you've got quite an extensive background, you know, in academics and research and particularly with, with teens and their learning development. And I'm just, I'm kind of curious, like what, what, uh, what drew you to that, that, that area? Yeah, so I started as a psychologist. And so in my work in psychology, I really started off within this realm of like positive psychology and intrinsic motivation. And that's what my master's thesis was based on. And that's what my doctoral dissertation was based on. And in my daily life, I run an adolescent special education program. And then in my, my other foot is within the world of homeschooling, unschooling, and self-directed learning research. 
So I, I think there's a place to combine the two, right? Both special ed and self-directed learning and homeschooling and unschooling. And I love really seeing commonalities, right? I, I think that schooling is always a choice. I think there's a choice between public, private, charter, homeschooling and unschooling. So I don't want anyone to be afraid of any of those choices, right? It's all a choice and it's all a good choice. And you kind of have to make the right choice for your kids. Yeah, 100%. I mean, as you're talking, I'm like thinking of my own reality right now. I've got one kid who starting high school for the first time in grade nine, he's been homeschooled his whole life. And I've got a daughter who's doing remote local curriculum, plus, you know, her own mix of things online. And then I've got a son who's in a self-directed online school program. So definitely going many flavors in, in, in our household, you know, it's yeah. just fi- finding that right path for each kid. Yeah, it really is. It's an amazing world with a ton of choices. And I'm so happy that self-directed learning and homeschooling and unschooling are now seen really as really viable choices, right? They're not just in the fringe anymore. They're coming into the mainstream. And that to me is like such a great thing. Yeah, I, I, I agree. I, I mean, I think in a lot of ways it's become more mainstream because they found what has been mainstream is not necessarily what they thought it was, right? It's not delivering what, what parents had, had really hoped for in, in a lot of situations. So, you know, you've developed a lot of research, you know, into unschooling, you know, including a, a just published book called Unschooling, Learning Beyond the Classroom. So we'll plug that for you. Congratulations on, on getting that published. Thank you. That was so much fun to write. Yeah. Tell us a bit more about, about your book. Sure. So Unschooling, Exploring Learning Beyond the Classroom is really the first research-based book on unschooling. And so what I did was I just took in and synthesized all the research that there ever was on unschooling and self-directed learning and put it into the book. And I think the nice thing about the book is, yes, it's very researchy. It's primarily for academics. It's primarily for college and university readers. But it also has some of my story woven in, some of my son's story woven in, because I did indeed unschool my son. And his first day of school was his first day of college. Wow. So it's academic and personal and really just exciting for me right now. It's something I've always wanted to do. Fantastic. So let's just start with this, you know, this, this thing called unschooling, which is kind of a, always a weird term to me because it's kind of saying what it isn't, right? It's unschooling. So what does unschooling mean? Yeah, so it's interesting, right? 20 years ago, unschooling was just all rolled up in a ball with homeschooling. No one ever said that they were unschoolers. Everyone just said that they were homeschoolers and then just learned through life. So what unschooling really is, is it's homeschooling without a curriculum, without tests or assessments or worrying about grade level. It really is learning through everyday life learning through a child or teen's intrinsic motivations, strengths, and interests. And that's really my favorite part of it. I'd love to dive into that a little bit deeper because there's obviously there's some things underpinning that, right? Like you're kind of describing like, like the how, like what it looks like, which is really important to understand. But what is it about that approach that that's important or what's underpinning those choices? Yeah. So one of the things I write about all the time that I focus on within the realm of unschooling is this whole notion of self-directed, intrinsically motivated learning. Because of course, that was my entry point through the world of homeschooling and unschooling. I didn't fall in love with the choice. I fell in love with the, the intrinsic motivation part, the part where you know, you wake up every day and you're like, what do I do today? And what do I want to do today? And you go ahead and do that. 
So that's really what made me dive in. Makes me want to ask you another question. How did you come across it? I mean, what, what was your what was your aha moment? So I was a young single mom. I was 20 years old when I had my son, who is now 24 years old. And I was doing a bachelor's program and I became just really interested in the work of Edward D.C. and Richard Ryan of the University of Rochester, really interested in their self-determination theory and cognitive evaluation theory, which I now write about quite a bit. And in that work, right, I remember looking at a New York Times article and they were talking about intrinsic motivation. And I was just like, wow, that's exactly how I want to live my life. And oh my gosh, that's exactly how I want to raise my child as well, right? I don't, I want my child seeped in his interests and strengths. What better life that is. And so, you know, when he turned five, we made the choice or I made the choice not to send him to school, which was a really controversial choice 20 years ago. I can imagine, yeah. Not like today. Um, Grandparents are going, what? Oh, what? Yeah. So I come from like, my mother was a guidance counselor in a middle school. Like I really come from a family where like education is key and where it's so important for a child to go to school. And here I was making this very controversial choice not to send my child to school. And one of the reasons why was at the time he was really interested in geology and rocks and chemical compositions. And I'm all I'm thinking is I'm going to put him on a bus and I'm going to send him to a place that, I mean, you don't do a lot of geology in kindergarten, right? I mean, <laughs> some, but you're not. Maybe you're, a little sandbox, you know? <laughs> yeah, maybe a little sandbox thing. And so it just turned out that every single year he would have the choice and I would give him the choice. Like, what do you want to do this year? And it would always be to homeschool or unschool. And with that then, right, came a lot of research on this field, because of course, I mean, I had to justify my choice. I think one of the reasons I got into research and I did my master's and I ended up doing my PhD was because I really had to justify this choice. I was a poor single mother, right, in a, in a neighborhood where everyone's like, this, I mean, why isn't this child going to school? And so I really had to say to them and to myself, what is the research behind this? Mm. You know, I, it, is it a big educational experiment? What the heck am I doing? So were you trying to justify it to, to yourself as well as to them? Like were those, you know, those doubts, those questions? Yeah. I think I was totally trying to justify it to myself as well yeah. as them. it was a brave choice to make. It was a courageous choice. I didn't have really any backing you know, I didn't have a community. There was no Facebook. There was no Twitter right. to say, yeah, you're making the right choice. Yeah. And so me and literally like growing without schooling, John Holt. And that was when that magazine was still being published. I remember that magazine being such a breath of fresh air. But I also remember the thought that I really do need to study this and I really do need to go deeper. If only because I needed to be able to say, well, I have the same education as a teacher and here I am, you know, he's home with me, so he's safe. But I also needed to be able to say that this way of living and this way of life was okay. Yeah, that's, well, those are incredible odds. What did that look like for you? I mean, as a single, single mom in, in those days. <laughs> Everyone's like, how'd you do it? And I'm like, you yeah. know, it's so funny. Like when you're in the midst of things, you don't realize, right? I was homeschooling. I was going to work. I was going to school. 
my mom and sister did when I went to school, they would watch the baby, but also the baby would go to a lot of classes with me, right? So he spent half of his like life from zero to five, I think, in a college class. That's interesting. Um, yeah. A lot of times I would call the professor and say, hey, can I bring my kid? And thankfully they were like, yeah, if he doesn't fuss, you can. And, and he wasn't a fussy kid. So I was able to really bring him into that life. I worked online then 20 years ago which was such an amazing thing to be able to do. It's why I loved distance learning now and why I love distance learning today, right? It was so amazing to be able to take my academic skills and transfer them in teaching online classes even 20 years ago. So even then I was doing a lot of working from home, going to school and homeschooling and doing it, you know, we were, we were a pair doing it all myself with my family who was really wonderful in terms of support, but again, did not really trust this very strange, different decision I was making. Well, that's a great, great segue to get into, you know, I'm sure what some of the questions that our listeners have. So from your research, how have you found, how have kids fared later in life having gone through the unschooling experience? Yeah, thankfully, very, very well. So in 2013, Peter Gray and I did a landmark study and what ends up being a landmark study on unschooling. What we did is that we sent 232 families or there was 232 families that responded to a call for research, um, really shared their lives with us. And so we asked about things like, you know, demographic information, where they were coming from, what age they were, who made the decision to unschool. But also things like the benefits and the challenges of unschooling, what their kids were doing now, um, and things like that. From that study, we really found that there were so many benefits. Increased motivation for learning was one of them. Loving just watching their kid really absorb themselves in their strengths and interests. Increased family freedom of schedule, the ability to travel and not be you know, secured by this school calendar. But there were also many challenges. And one of the main challenges in 2013, when this study came out, was other people's perceptions of what homeschooling was or unschooling was and how that fed into their kind of thought inside about what they were doing. Of course, also a challenge was doing something different from everybody else. Again, even in 2013, I mean, unschooling has grown dramatically. Even in 2013, unschooling was a very different thing to do. And then, of course, Peter and I looked at this 232 family study, and we're always so thankful to the participants of that study. But they were parents who were answering for their kids. And so we really wanted to know, well, what are the kids' views on this? You know, what happens when you grow up? Right. Yeah. You know, unschooled, like what happens? And so we ended up doing a study that came published into two parts in the journal Other Education in 2015 about 75 grown unschoolers' perceptions of unschooling. And what we found was that the families and the kids' views meshed. They really enjoyed their lives. They found it really, really wonderful to be able to focus a whole day on what they were interested in. They be they were most all of them were gainfully employed, except for the ones that were full-time caregivers or going to school full-time. 83% of them went on to some form of higher education. And 
a large majority, over 70% were financially independent, which I think is very, very interesting. In terms of careers, a lot of them we found out, you know, yes, the entrepreneurial sector is ripe with those unschoolers and so are the creative arts sector. And really because they get a lot of time to spend time doing what they love. But also we had a lot of individuals going into STEM careers, which is so amazing to hear and such a strength. So the end result is the kids were all right (laughs) and even better than all right, right? The kids were really amazing and had such great stories and grew up to be really well-functioning adults. I always want to counter that with we had three participants who did not love their unschooling experience. Those participants lived in households that were either ultra-religious or that had a family member or parent that was had mental illness. Two out of three of those had advanced degrees. So whatever you want to take from that, you take from that. But I also, you know, as a researcher, you always want to weigh all sides. Obviously, unschooling doesn't work for everybody, but it also it does work for most. Yeah, the, the thing that was jumping out at me as you were talking is, yeah, there's, there's, there's different paths perhaps to the same destination, right? Like university or a professional career or, or whatever. What I'm hearing is, is, you know, unschooling can get you there just as much as, you know, traditional schooling can. But in addition, the, the real difference is perhaps a, the joy, the fulfillment, the, the, the experience of that educational journey can be vastly different between, you know, more of a top-down directed model of traditional school versus one where, where you're kind of choosing your own path with the support of your, your, your parents and others. Yeah, it's a different model. And what we also learned from that 75 grown unschooler study was that just as like unschooling is a different path, uh, the path to college and the path to career may not look as traditional as everyone else's path, right? So it not, might not just be about submitting scores and transcripts. A lot of the unschoolers in the study went ahead, called the program director of the program at the college they were interested in and, you know, had an interview with them and said, this is what I'm really interested in, but this is my background, you know? A lot of individuals went the community college route to get a transcript and then went on to a four-year university. So just like we think there's always this one path, there's so many different paths to getting into college. Um, And now more and more colleges do have these set paths for untraditional learners, which is so great to see. I mean, really, they have to, as you said, it's, it's growing so much that um, even just for them, honestly, to survive as a, as a college, right? In these, these days, you've got to be willing to serve people where they're, where they're at. And, and the other thing, too, is, is, you know, some of my interviews, my own research for my own kids, you know, places like Galileo and Sora and all these, these very, you know, less, you know, just about a one-year-old startups, they have relationships or Acton Academy, like they have relationships with schools that can provide these these transcripts right if that's required or necessary to to go down that path so yeah there really is you know at this day like this is an amazing time to be exploring options so much easier i'm sure than back in 2013 and certainly a lot easier back then when you started uh, you know 20 years ago it's such a great time to really reimagine paths to education to reimagine paths to college I always am surprised that I get calls from, you know, the Ivy League colleges saying, how do we access this population, right? They're very, very interested. 
And so there's there's something in here, you know, there's something in this movement that's so very special. And I think it, it is really the focus on intrinsic motivation, self-determination and self-direction. Yeah, I'd love to, to, love to dive into that a little bit more. I, I know when, when I was reading about some of your, some of your research reading, when I, when I heard that, it made me think a lot of too about, uh, you know, Daniel, books like Daniel Pink's uh, Drive, right? Which where he talks a lot about, you know, autonomy, mastery, and, you know, what's the third one? Yeah, like, relatedness. And then relatedness, Dan yeah. Drive, right? I'll always say this, like Dan Pink's Drive is a, a pop culture book that came from Dietschy and Ryan's work. Well, that's so interesting. Called, I didn't know that. Yeah, no, I mean, that's that. Dan <laughs> pull back the curtain on that one too. Pull back the curtain, right? Dan <laughs> took DC and Ryan and really took their work and, and made it famous per se, but it's really their work. It was their work on intrinsic motivation and self-determination. It was their cognitive evaluation theory that etched out the key factors in facilitating intrinsic motivation, which is competence and autonomy and relatedness. So Dan Pink is wonderful and I absolutely love him, but it was really DC and Ryan that started this movement. Well, let's pull it apart a little bit more. So when you say intrinsic motivation, that might be a, an unfamiliar term to some, some listeners. What, what do you mean by that? Yeah. So intrinsic motivation is really just all about doing what you love. It's about doing what you love, doing what you're interested in, and really just having that internal focus, that internal motivation. And so intrinsic motivation was defined by Edward D.C. and Richard Ryan's self-determination theory. They also have a sub-theory called cognitive evaluation theory. And that's where these notions of competence, autonomy, and relatedness come in. So cognitive evaluation theory will say that, you know, of course you can't force intrinsic motivation because that would be extrinsic, but you can indeed facilitate it. And the way you facilitate it in kids is really focusing on that, those feelings of competence, the feeling that I can do, the feeling of confidence, right? The notion of giving kids and adolescents choice, autonomy as much choice and autonomy as they can handle. And then also that notion of relatedness, that you facilitate motivation by being related, by being there, by being, you know, it's much like unconditional love or unconditional acceptance. Because if you feel relatedness, then you can go explore things. And then if you make mistakes, there's always going to be someone who has your back. And so those creating that safety, right? That safety oh, to, to explore and, and yeah. to take risks, which is, you know, in my, in my work in, in corporations and with teams, that's always, I mean, Google even came out, you're probably familiar with their, their study on, you know, high performing teams and they, they whittled away all the different factors. And the one that, that was still standing was psychological safety. You know, that, that so important. It's so important. I think it's going to become more important as we grow as an educational community, like as a world educational community, that having one person that has your back, no matter what, that allows you, and it really is about allowing you to take risks and mistakes. It's also called in research, the dignity of risk, right? We're humans. We're not perfect. All of us make mistakes. And part of growing and learning is making mistakes and saying, oh, I learned from that mistake. Now, I'm, I'm curious, as you're talking about that, I can't help but think like traditional school with, with this tests and whatnot. I mean, 
what, what's, what's going on there when it comes to intrinsic motivation? Like what are, what are some of the ways that, I mean, can school, is school helping in any way? Cause in a lot of ways, it just seems like it would just be getting in the way. Yeah, I think schools have, public schools have a long way to go here, although there are some schools that have embraced a notion of intrinsic motivation and project-based learning, which is incredible to see. Bravo to those schools who have taken the risk. But most schools do fall into a system of positive behavior supports, of extrinsic motivators to get kids to learn. And again, I think that this pandemic has taught us to really rethink that, right? It's very easy to reward extrinsically in a classroom space, in a, in a real-time personal classroom space. It's very hard to reward extrinsically in a remote learning environment, right? Because there's no token you can give someone in a remote learning environment that's going to be meaningful. And so that self-direction and intrinsic motivation has again reared its head. You know, this is the ideal forum for learning. And I think as public schools grow and change as a result of this pandemic, they really are going to look at their more extrinsic systems and try to have or foster or facilitate kids being more intrinsically motivated, self-directed, self-determined, because of course, in a system of remote learning, that's how you're going to get them online. That's how you're going to get them engaged. Well, that, that would be a real refreshing thing to see, you know, and one of the gifts of, uh, of a crisis, hopefully. I mean, I look for, yeah, I really look forward to the reimagining. I really look forward to the reexamination of structures and procedures of schooling. Because I've always said, again, everything's a choice. And I've always said that, you know, public schools have so much to learn from the world of self-directed learning. Now, so, so we touched on intrinsic motivation. Let's delve into some of the other key important parts as well from your, your research. Yeah, so I do a lot of different things. Again, my focus usually is on intrinsic motivation and that leads to a focus on unschooling which also leads to a focus on studying different realms of unschooling. So I've done studies on unschoolers who identify as LGBTQ, which I think is so interesting, right? Because these unschoolers said that, you know, unschooling gave them the time and space to explore theories of gender, to explore sexuality, to explore the different theories that make them who they are. It led to less bullying. It led to less judgment in their eyes uh, of them when they were teens and making these crucial decisions about their lives. Um, so that's one study that I've done that I think is very, very interesting. I'm also very involved in cross-cultural studies. I did a study of unschooling in Hong Kong where, I mean, unschooling in Hong Kong is a very brave thing to do because it's not legal. And so like how that looks right within this world of education in Hong Kong. And of course, my new study has to do with unschoolers who have special needs and examining the environment and how that environment fits into the world of special education and disability studies. Well, that's, that's, I'd love to go there next because I know you, like you mentioned you, you kind of live in two different worlds, right? Working with, with teachers in, in the traditional school system and your research in, in the unschooling world. So let's, let's dive into that a bit more and, and look at how students are supported in, in both of those environments and the challenges they have and how they can be supported. Yeah. 
So one of the reasons I got into special education, again, I'm coming from this psychological realm, right? I'm not coming from this special ed teacher realm, is that I love the notion of the IEP. I love the notion of an individualized education plan for those with special needs, which in the United States, all kids who have a classified disability do get an IEP, which outlines their strengths, what they need to work on, goals that teachers need to work on, and things like that. So I love this notion of the IEP. And what I found was the IEP in special ed when it comes to unschooling is sort of this natural thing, right? So instead of having this document that outlines, here are the strengths, here are the weaknesses, and here's what we're going to do, you have this whole system of education that says, okay, like here are the strengths, here are the weaknesses, let's, let's do it. Let's do whatever you need as a kid to work with all of it. Um, and so I always think that unschooling is, is very IEP based. For some kids, unschooling is very, very healing, right? So I'm thinking kids with maybe some attention deficits who may not work really well in the traditional classroom tend to, Peter Gray did a non-peer-reviewed study on this. It's very interesting. Tend to work really well with an unschooled self-directed learning environment. They could use their hyper-focus to an advantage. They could be able to self-direct their attention. Uh, same thing with kids with emotional and behavioral disorders. I'm doing some work with Carlo Ricci on unschooling and healing. And what we're getting is we're getting a collection of essays of individuals who have really experienced the healing that comes from self-directed learning, whether in themselves or in their kids. And one of the things we found is that for many parents and for many students, Unschooling has provided this very, very, really nice space for healing. Yes, because of the time that unschooling gives you, right? It's not like you have 40 minutes of math and then 40 minutes of science and 40 minutes of history. You have this unlimited space and time, but also because of the notion that you can explore strengths. And so your disability doesn't define you. It's really the strengths and what you feel competent at that defines you. I wonder too, though, for, for parents, sometimes it can be really daunting or confusing to understand, you know, what's going on with their, their child. And, you know, looking at both situations, like, I mean, obviously in the, in the schools, there's a lot of, you know, assessments, there's things that can, diagnoses that can be done and, and so on. I'm not sure what the right way to ask this is, but, you know, obviously a, a parent has to really understand what's, what's going on with their, their child. And I, I wonder, I wonder sometimes with unschooling, if, if things, some things don't really get really understood or figured out as well as say perhaps in, in a school system where there's kind of more of a professional approach, if you will, to um, trying to understand. What are, what are your thoughts on that? Yeah. So I think it goes back to districts and states, right? So depending on the state you're in, in the United States and depending on the district, you register as a homeschooler if you're an unschooler. And in registering as a homeschooler, you still can get school-based services, right? So you can get the speech language services. You can get the reading intervention services if you want them, right, in a public realm. And if you want to go ahead and explore your own speech-based services or reading-based services or psychological services, you, can, you have the freedom to do that as well. So because we register as homeschoolers in the United States, it's not like districts are ignoring their needs, right? There are still resources for those needs. So it's not so much being missed out on in terms of diagnosis and classification 
It's just working with kids in a different way, in a different environment. And that's the great thing. Again, we're not ignoring disability, right? Instead, we're trying to focus on the person in that different environment. Okay. Yeah, no, that, that's helpful. And obviously, as you point out, it's, it's very different in different places. Like my experience where I am in Northern Ontario and in, in Canada is it's, it's, a bit more, it's a bit more separate. In fact, there's, there's a lot of things you can't access unless as a homeschooler, unless you are in a school system. And I've, I've had other, you know, I've, uh, we have family friends, you know, have a, you know, a son with autism and whatnot, and just really hard for him to really access things without being in a school. So it's, it creates kind of this tension, right? Yeah. You'd like to have these supports, but you, you can't in, in, in a homeschooling way. So it's great that in, in the U.S. It's, it's a little more supportive in that sense. Yeah, or the choice, right? So I'll always say, I'll never say that unschooling is the right choice for everyone or that public schooling is the right choice for everyone. Right now, there's a myriad of choices in education. And it's so nice to see all those choices respected. And of course, parents need to do what they think is the right you know, right thing for their child or teen. And so they have all these choices and they can make all these choices and that freedom of choice is nice. What's also interesting is there's so many within the disability world, both in the United States, Canada, and overseas, there are so many nonprofits that provide services as well. So here in New York, we have like Include New York City, which is a nonprofit advocacy organization. We have Synergia, which is a nonprofit advocacy advocacy organization. So if homeschoolers or unschoolers were interested in, you know, having services, but not doing it within the district, I would advise them to definitely go to those nonprofit advocacy organizations and see what's available for them. There's tons of free services available, just a matter of finding them. Yeah, no, that's, that's so true. And that's really with the, with the internet, there's so many more <laughs> yeah. poss- possibilities today, right? Not like 20 years ago. Oh, absolutely. It's such a different which is so nice to see. So I'm kind of curious. So like what advice would you have then for, for people, parents in particular listening right now and are thinking, you know, wow, like this unschooling sounds like really awesome or amazing, but potentially a better fit for one or more of, of their kids and you know, currently has some kids in traditional school. What, what advice would you have for them? Yeah, I always say you have to follow your heart and you have to follow what your mind said. And so it's all about the reading, right? There's lots of amazing websites and books out there. If you are more into theory and Ed Psych, I would read John Holt. I would read even Howard Gardner, who comes to it for more of a traditional sense in terms of multiple intelligences. And then these amazing coaches that can help through an unschooling journey. You have Sandra Dodd, you have Sue Wolf Patterson. There are so many people within the self-directed learning environment that love coaching and mentoring individuals who are even thinking of unschooling. And then there's also the social media aspect of the myriad, the tons of support groups now for individuals really thinking about educational options, really curious about unschooling. And of course, I have to say, if you're interested on, in the academic side, it's really that book, Unschooling, Exploring, Learning Beyond the Classroom, that will give you the research behind the movement, which I think is always helpful. And from, from your research, what would you say are really the, the, the key success factors in, say, an unschooling environment really working well, especially if you're getting started, right? What, what do they really need to be paying attention to? 
Yeah, I think you have to be paying attention to your your own child, whether that child is a, a, a little child or an adolescent. It you know, a lot of unschooling is about watching and learning along with your child, really keying into their interests and their strengths. And unschooling itself is a gift. You know, in this pandemic, we've all been given this time, right? Whether we like it or not, because there's horrible things going on in this world, but we've all been given this time to pause and to think and to really reimagine or recreate structures that we once thought were very solid, right? We once thought that going to work and commuting to work was just the thing we all did. And getting on the school bus and going to school was just a thing we all did. Right. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So this pandemic has made us rethink. And so my message to parents is, you know, there's so many choices out there. And if unschooling is attractive, it's great to really research that and rethink. And if your child is going to thrive in that environment, why not try it? And there's so many people to support. Yeah, that's that's really beautiful. I think a really important point is it, I think it's it's really okay to experiment and to try and and not feel like Kind of what you're saying earlier about creating this 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 psychological safety to experiment and and you know be okay with with failing and and just because that's part of the learning process is to figure out what ultimately is is the right path and you know I've had some other some other guests on the show really just talk about you know just kind of easing back particularly on this year right like not it's not about necessarily keeping fully up to speed with all the academics going in in, in the school like you know and even. Um, like when, when kids are motivated and, and interested, they can catch up if need be on, on things. But, but at the same time, we discover that's really not the path for them at all. And they'll never know unless, unless you take that, that option. And as you point out, like with your son going to, to college and you know, never taken a, a test or attended a, a class, you know, it's the, the possibility is there. So don't, don't feel the pressure parents out there to, you know, get it right on, on the, the first try. I mean, you've been doing, we're all, you're all been doing your best. And, and, you know, you, if you're thinking of something different, then it's, you know, clearly you're seeing that you, you have your best interests of your, your kids at heart and, you know, take that opportunity to, to, to look around. Yeah. It's never been more acceptable to try things within the realm of education as it is now. And so if anything good is going to come out of this pandemic, it is the notion that We've had this time to slow down, to recreate, to relearn, and to try things we think that are going to serve our kids. And it's really all about our kids. Yeah, absolutely. And what, what's, what's, what's your son taking in college? What's his passion area? Yeah, so he is a second year graduate student now. He's going to oh, graduate wow. with his master's in May. He owns a Taking music- after his mom. <laughs> it's so interesting, right? Right now he owns a music education business. I don't know if academia is going to be the next path. I always, again, like I unschool my, you know, adult children unschool too. And so as adults, I want, I want my son to create his own path in his own way. But he is so successful and just a wonderful human, someone I am so very proud of. And of course, again, I don't, I don't think he's an anomaly. I think there are so many unschoolers who will tell you stories of their amazing childhoods and their incredible adulthoods and what they're doing. It's just a great choice. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I can only imagine now, you know, his, his grandparents and, and neighbors are 
really excited yeah. for how it all turned everyone, out, right? Everyone's a fan now. <laughs> the bandwagon's full. Yeah. yeah, everyone's a fan now, which awesome. is great. It's well, awesome. well, 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 well done for you and Gina in taking that very, very courageous choice 20 years ago to say yes to your, your son, to a, a life of fulfillment and joy and wonder and intrinsically motivated journey. So good. And um, just really thankful to have you on, on the show today. And we'll have some information in the show notes for people who you know, want to uh, read some of the, the books that you mentioned. We'll, we'll have them there as well as, as some ways to contact you. If you have any more, more questions, I'm sure you'd be happy to answer yeah, some questions. Yeah, Absolutely. Feel free to connect with me on social media or look up my Hunter webpage. Again, I'm, I'm not big on social media because I'm mainly an academic, but I love hearing from people via email or via Facebook or however they want to connect. Thank you. This show is amazing. You're doing such good in the world. I so appreciate your time and your kind words and all the best. It's exciting. This show is so exciting. Great. Thanks so much, Gina. Thanks so much.